Amen. <clears throat> morning, everybody. <clears throat> so we are starting this morning our summer series, and it's on a topic that uh, I just have to confess to you, I've got a lot of baggage with this thing. And I just want you to imagine that, uh, you know, let me see if I can make it. We're talking about, like, prayer. And my baggage with prayer is that when I first became a Christian, I heard all the stories that maybe you've heard of these. My nose is running. I'm sorry. I probably got something hanging out of it, don't I? No? Am I clean? Okay. Uh, Is that I was told that, man, your prayer life is a life of discipline. I had prayer journals. I would hear stories of saints that would wake up at like three in the morning and pray. Like there's stories of Martin Luther who would pray for two hours every morning. And if it was a really busy day, he would pray for three hours. I'm like, and all these things were setting me up for colossal failure. And prayer started going into the category of shoulds and shame and guilt and failure. So let me just ask, how's your prayer life? Like, maybe, like, do you pray, like, during dinner, you know, or, like, do you pray a lot, like, during crisis, you know, somebody's in the hospital, are you kind of like Anne Lamont, who said that the lowest form of prayer is cussing, (laughs) that you may be praying a lot, then you're like, woo, bro, it's like an ocean of prayers, hours every morning before I even get out of bed. What I want to do this summer, and Gary and I have talked about this, it's our passion that one of the marks of our community is that we're a praying community. But what does that mean, individually and also corporately? And so for us to get there, some of what we have to do is deconstruct and then rebuild. Are you with me? Seriously? Wow, y'all are encouraging. Very inspiring. Let me start with this. So when I was in fourth grade, uh, I'll never forget it. It was Halloween, and that morning, uh, Starlene, that was her name, Starlene, she was, I know, seriously, she was the prettiest girl in all of fourth grade at Martin Park Elementary School. She came to me and spoke words that I will never forget. She looked at me and she goes, hey, Randy, do you want to go trick-or-treating with me and my friends tonight? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I said, yes, are you, yes, yes. And she lived in the neighborhood right next to mine so I could ride my bike over. What time, where, where do you want me to do? Like, I don't remember what I wore. I remember what she wore. Like, she was dressed like a hippie and she had a t-shirt that said, love you on it. Like, I remember it like it was yesterday. And then what happened, we trick-or-treated, you know, and we filled up, you know, our bags with candy. And before I left, I'm not kidding you, Starlene, It's not going to be as meaningful to you. (laughs) She kissed me. It was my first kiss ever. And I got to tell you that that moment, that moment, it was just, it was so powerful. And I'm not, hey, lighten up. It wasn't sexual. We were like nine years old, all right? Here's what was so powerful about it. It wasn't like the movies. It wasn't like anything I'd seen on TV. Even when guys were joking about it, it was not like any of those things. It was magical because I knew at that moment, at that moment, at that very moment, I was the only person on the planet that was kissing Starlene. 
out of all the choices she had, I was the one. Now, she, I don't know how many she's kissed since, you know, who knows. But at that moment, I'm telling you, I was seen. Like I was seen, but I wasn't just seen, I was wanted. And I wasn't just wanted, I experienced the most intimate moment I'd ever experienced in my nine years of being on this planet. That's prayer. Now hang on to that. Hang on to that, because we're going to talk about why is that prayer. Because it's not what you think. Prayer is not the Chuck E. Cheese of the church. And what I mean by that, have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? And you play skeet ball? You've never, Rusty, you've been to Chuck E. Cheese, bro. You are Chuck E. Cheese, all right? (laughs) And you play that game, and what do you do when you get a lot of balls in the high point section? You get the tickets. And as prayer, the tickets that we take to God's gift shop and exchange for him to give us the things that we want. Like if I pray a lot, God's going to do a lot, right? Like this is the thing that I do. I practice a lot, so God's going to do a lot. It's the heavenly exchange where I am giving God my prayers and God gives me what I want, right? No. It's not the way that we get the Holy Spirit interested in us. It's not the, the spiritual version of David Goggins. Do you know who he is? Some of you don't. Let me, let me bring you into the world of David Goggins. David Goggins is an ultra marathon super athlete. He is a very intense individual, all right? He holds the world record for the most pull-ups. I think it's in the category of about 4,000. So, and he runs these races that are like 100 miles, like on the moon, like, you know, without oxygen. It's insane what he does. And I heard him being interviewed this week, and they said, give us an idea of your daily routine. And he says, well, he says, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I put on my shoes and I go run at minimum 12 miles. And I'm like, oh, sweet Jesus, that just sounds horrible. He says, I got to do it to clear my mind, clear my mind, steal my mind is what he said against all the things that are going to come against it the rest of the day. And I'm like, if I ran 12 miles first thing in the morning, that would be my day. That's, it's no more threats. I'm in bed. And then he said, at night, I meditate for two hours before I go to sleep. And literally the first thought in my mind is he has no children in his home. (laughs) There is no way. But is that prayer where we get to such a disciplined place that we transform ourselves and we transcend everybody else around us to where we get on a whole new plane that we literally are walking in a way with God that nobody else does. Okay. Is prayer powerful? Yes. Does God use the prayers of his people? Yes. We're going to talk about all that. Does God do remarkable things individually as we pray? Yes. Does he do it collectively when we all collectively pray? Yes. He does incredible things. We're going to talk about all that, the sovereignty of God, but we're going to start with one place. And that one place is this. This is not an accurate understanding of prayer. This is an accurate understanding of prayer. Prayer is not me going to find God. Prayer is a response to a God who's coming to find me. Let us sink in just for a minute. Every one of my prayers are a response to an invitation, not an invitation. 
every one of my prayers are a response to God's initiation, not me trying to get God to initiate. Revelations chapter three. This is a letter to the church. Here I am. This is Jesus speaking. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is saying to you, the church, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. That is God initiating. Whoever will open the door, now my prayers. I'm going to come in and I'm not just going to, I'm not coming in to scold you. I'm not coming in to wrestle you to the ground. What does he say? I'm coming in to eat with you, to fellowship with you, to be with you, to pursue you because I want you. Much like Starlene. <laughs> Do you know what the first prayer in the Bible is? The first recorded conversation we have with anybody, it was after Adam and Eve had sinned and God was walking through the garden. God was walking through the garden, looking for Adam and Eve and calling out their name. That's the first prayer. Adam responding in the brutal reality of where he was. I am hiding because I am naked and I'm afraid of you. All initiated by God. He was looking at Adam and goes, Adam, do you know where you are? Adam, do you even know? See, prayer is God initiating a desire to call us to himself. Let me try to explain. So we lived in Charlottesville, Virginia for a number of years. If you've never been there, it used to be beautiful. I think it's overcrowded now. But there's the place there. I mean, I grew up in the South. I didn't know what a bagel was until we moved to Charlottesville. But there's a place there that's magical. It's called Bodo Bagels. Anybody been there? Uh, yes, the buses will wait. Raise your hand. We're all going. The best bagels on the planet. I don't care. Maybe they're just nostalgic for me. But I was there uh, early one morning with a friend of mine. And the University of Virginia is right across the street. And we're just eating our bagels. We're worshiping Jesus with our groans. Uh, yes. And the college students are starting to flood across the parking lot to come into the door. And they have to walk right past the window that we're sitting next to. And we're standing there and this college girl is walking by and she locks eyes with me and like does the slow walk and just keeps doing this. And my friend looks at me and goes, Bro, what was that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Some days you got it, you know? And we're laughing, we're joking. Just kind of, oh, married man, come on. And then another girl walks by and does the same thing. And I'm like, is there something hanging out of my nose? Like, what is happening? Girl after girl. And my friend just could not believe it until we got through eating and we walked outside in the parking lot. And we realized the way the sun was hitting the glass, it was turning it into a mirror. And they couldn't see in the restaurant. All they were looking at was themselves. They couldn't, they were captivated by their own image. Why are you laughing at that? 
Yeah, I know what you're saying. There had to be a catch. We know him. There's a catch. It's actually kind of sad. I did. I felt sadness. My friend was laughing. And I'll tell you why I felt sadness. There is something inside of me that so desperately wants to be seen. There is something inside of me that I want to be found. There's something deep inside of me that aches to be discovered and to be desired. There's something that, that is inside of me to be longed for. And when I realized none of those things were happening at that point, it was sad. But here's the reality. God made me that way. God crafted me together. It was touching something very deep within me and very personal. Kirk Thompson, if you've ever read his book, Soul to Shame, how does he say it? We're, we're born into a world looking for someone that's looking for us. He even said that we're all born with eyes that are darting, searching for eyes that are looking for ours, searching for a gaze that lights up when it meets our own. That God made us that way. And here, here's the strength of this, is that Prayer initiated by God is God catching my gaze and stepping into that place in me that longs to be desired. And God going, I want you. I mean, why else could you explain Isaiah 65? Isaiah 65, before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, before you even say it, I know what you're going to ask. And before you even ask, I already know what I'm going to do. And you go, well, then what is the purpose of prayer? Am I wasting my time unless there's a completely different reason? Maybe, maybe, okay, th put this in context and we can fight later, okay? Maybe God doesn't care about your prayers. Maybe God doesn't give a flip and rip about your prayer journal. We'll fight. Maybe God cares more about you. And I got to tell you, that scares the hell out of me. Literally. Let me tell you why. I am terrified of that kind of intimacy. I mean, if God's locking eyes with me, how long can I keep my gaze? That's just scary because it's not safe because he's seeing right through me. And I live in a world where I fight vulnerability. I live in a world where I, you're all, you look so great right now. Like, look at you. You're all clean. You combed your hair. Some of you showered. Thank you. You know, you're all, we're all so good at polishing up the outside, hoping that no one is going to believe that my outside doesn't match my inside. Because we're so afraid that if somebody actually saw the reality of who I am, I'm not going to be desired. I'm not going to be loved. I'm not going to be accepted. I'm actually going to be rejected. I grew up like that. I, you know, many of you know my story. You know, I grew up in a home where one of my parents uh, was an addict. And it took me years before I began to face the consequences of being raised by an addict. And um, I was a part of a group called Adult Children of Alcoholics, ACA. And I remember the first meeting a friend brought me to. I was scared to death. I was like, I'm just terrified that some midtowner is going to walk in and realize that I have needs. You can laugh at that, all right? <laughs> and guess what? There was like 100 midtowners coming in. Oh, what's happening? 
I'm like, no, no, no. And the first person that got up, she stood up and she identified herself as a lesbian. And I said, okay, this is going to be safe. I have nothing in common with her. Like we are far apart on the spectrum. And she began to tell her story. And what she was telling was my story. And I began to get so frightened inside because I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you could change her name with my name and it'd be the same story. I'm like, no, you don't speak that stuff out loud. The stuff you're saying, keep it to yourself. I learned that you kept all your family secrets. You didn't bring your, your secrets into public because that's way too dangerous. That's way too vulnerable. That's way too scary. Because if people see that, if people know that, that desire within you to be seen and loved and belonging is going to get shattered. It's crazy. That's why a lot of us know a lot about God. Some of you know more about the Bible than I do. But I can only count on maybe both hands people that I know that really know God, that walk with God, that their lives are marked by a fellowship with God. Because I'm telling you, when you know a lot about God, it's so much easier to keep him at arm's distance. Like you can leave him here. Like when you leave here today, you went to church, okay? But don't become the church. Because if you are the church, then God chases you out when you go. Like he's in the car before you are. Where are we going? Where are we going? Like that God who's waiting for you in your living room when you get home, that is an unnerving thing. The one who sees all, sees you, wants you scary. Okay. It's scary. I could end the sermon here. Y'all want to keep going? Because this is the first step we're going to take for the summer. Uh, And this now gets really practical. What do I do? Because I really want you to have a vibrant prayer life where you're practicing vulnerability and you're known by God and you begin to understand and know him and actually begin to understand and know yourself. Ready? First step. This is Psalm 46. It says, hang on, this is scary. (laughs) These these are big words. I won't do them justice. Be still and know that I'm God. The first step is, you guessed it, be still. And most most of you are like, forget that. I know what it's like to be still. Many of you don't experience it until you put your head on your pillow and it's the first time in your day when it's quiet and you're still. And it is war. Like, it is all on. Have you ever had that experience where you lay your head on your pillow and now you're running through your day? Now you're running through all your fears, all your expectations, and now you're starting to think about tomorrow and all your responsibilities, and that awakens all your fears and all your unwanted sorrows. And before you know it, you've, you've played out this one little problem that you have that's starting to snowball in your head, and then fear gets into the party and makes it even bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can't go to sleep because you're convinced in five years you're going to be homeless and living under a bridge downtown Nashville. The worst case scenario you could possibly imagine. And then you're trying to figure out, okay, if we get divorced, then how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to pay for this? And your fear now is creating a future that doesn't exist, but your heart and your emotions are responding to it in real time. Be still? No way. I don't want that world. In fact, I don't want to be still at all. And yet it's the pathway to this life that we're talking about. I know. We're going to talk about why and how. Richard Foster, 
Some of you may remember him. You have to be my age. He wrote that book, Celebration of Discipline, right? Yes, nobody you know him. So Richard Foster was a superhero, all right? He flew through the sky. I could say anything about him and you wouldn't care. But he wrote this great book on Celebration of Discipline, the spiritual journey of prayer. He said, in contemporary society, our adversary, and when he says adversary, he's talking about the devil here. We have an enemy that's actually working against what I'm saying to you this morning. He said, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Some have taken what he said and said that's brilliant, and they've changed it just a little bit and said the adversary displays himself as noise, hurry, and crowds. That he is noise, hurry, and crowds. And when I take up prayer as a spiritual discipline to do something for God, my prayers actually become part of the noise part of the hurry, and part of the crowd. Let me tell you, when we slow down and we get still, the noise is actually the tool that God is using for you to experience intimacy with God. Let me me try to explain that. All that stuff you can't turn off, all that is a gift from God. So do you remember the first time you ever went out to a real restaurant without your parents? Like maybe it was a date, maybe it was the prom or something, but you're literally going in and you're paying for what is you're ordering. And if you're taking somebody else, you know, you're, you're hoping to sweet Jesus. There's where your prayer life comes alive. Please don't let them order the lobster, you know, and you're trying, okay, I got this, I got this. And The stress and the anxiety is, do I have enough to cover what we're about to experience? That's what's going on up here. When our brain is going crazy, we're really, we're searching our pockets to go, do I have enough to handle what this life is going to give me? Do I have enough to succeed? Do I have enough to care for my family? Do I have enough to take care of me? Do I have enough to cover up the shame of all the things that I do that nobody knows about? Like, am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? Do you know if you had that experience and the next night you went out to dinner with your dad, you wouldn't have any of those thoughts. In fact, you would be the one ordering the lobster off the menu. Dad, high five, you know? Dad's resources are enough to cover this. You don't worry. So here's the point I'm making. All that craziness that goes on when we're still, this is what it helps us do. Help! Let me do it one more time. Okay. All the craziness that's going on in here. I'm not enough. Help! And in that stillness, it says, uh, be still and know that I'm God. And what will we know about God? Well, if we go to Matthew chapter 6, there's the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer starts with just a simple line, our Father in heaven. So let's just break that down. 
and talk about it for a few minutes, and I'm going to give you a tool that uh, I think would help you as we begin this journey together this summer, okay? The first is our, our Father. Be still and know that I am God. And what do we know about God? He's ours. This is a possessive, that God is giving us permission as his children to call us his own. And I, I don't know how to illustrate this other than uh, you have some R's in your life. Like if I started talking to you about my Renee, like even if you don't know me, you would probably guess that's your wife because there's possession there and I'm her Randy. Like there, there is a relational connection that allows me now to have ownership for her in a way that you don't. You don't have that and you're never gonna have that. That is a possession that is mine that I actually get to lean into and trust into and work through. Even when times are hard and it feels like we're at odds with one another, we're still ours. Make sense? And Jesus begins this prayer by saying, God is yours. You're his, but he is yours. And we are his in such a great degree that even when we are a mess, we are his. Even when we don't know we're his, we're his. Watchman Nee, if you've never read any of his stuff, I love his stuff. Uh, interesting character. He tells the story about this new convert that had come to his house. And basically the convert is saying, look, I've been praying, I've been praying, and I've been praying. But the more I pursue God, the worse I get. It seems like the more I give time to prayer, the worse I get in my life. I'm actually becoming a worse person than I was before I met Jesus, which is completely normal. We can talk about that. There's nothing more beautiful than the Holy Spirit coming in and poking around in the attic of your heart and you seeing things you'd never seen before. It's a glorious experience. Never do that alone. <laughs> and he said to watch my knees, I think I'm, I'm losing my salvation. And here's what he said. You see that dog there? He's my dog. He's the house trained. He is house trained. He never makes a mess. He's obedient. He is a pure delight and joy to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son. A baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He's a total mess. But who's going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son is my heir. You are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. We are Christ's heir, not through our perfection, but because of his grace. We are his, and he is ours because of what Christ has done for us. It is finished. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. That's big. But the next word is our father. And this can be hard for some of you um, because you have to deconstruct what you think a father is to reconstruct what a real father is. See, I grew up in a home where maturity was to be a son meant that you, you grew up. Grow up. Aren't you grown up? And that growing up meant get your act together and get out of here. Leave. That was the mark of manhood is that when you turn 18, you go off to college. You never come back home. Like you're, you grew up. You grew up and you're gone. That's being a son. 
But then I meet this new heavenly father and this new heavenly father says, no, 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 no. You ain't going anywhere. I'm going to always be with you. I want you to grow up and grow in, which means that you will never lose your dependency upon me. That's a whole different paradigm than what I grew up in. And Jesus does something. I won't do it justice, but if you read the Old Testament, there are lots of names for God in the Old Testament. They're elegant. Elohim. Elohim, the strong one. El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Elyon, the most high God. I can go on and on. There are tons of names that describe God. Then there's the name of Yahweh. You know, the preexistent, the I am. There's Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Yahweh Sabiath, the Lord of hosts. Then there's a word I can't pronounce. Yahweh Makadarabalah. But it means the Lord is your sanctifier. All right. There's so many of these brilliant high, lofty names of the magnitude and the brilliance and the unbelievable character of God. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes all those names, all those names. I found this on the web. <laughs> it's saying it has a much better sermon. Uh, Jesus took all those names and he bundled them together. And what did he come out with? Father. Father. If I have a father, it means I can be a kid again. And I want to talk about that. It says in Romans 8, but you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Fear for sonship. And what do we do in sonship? We cry out. And what do we cry out? Daddy, daddy. And the spirit itself testifies that we are his children. Let me give you the picture what Paul is painting here. We've not been given a spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit of sonship. Why? So we can cry out. If you have a little kid that's scared in the middle of the night, what do they do? You know, they don't draw out their plastic swords and build a bunker in the corner and get themselves ready for battle. All they do is cry out, Daddy. And if Mama doesn't go, which she normally does, <laughs> what happens when Daddy steps in the room where the kid is like, I know I have a father and I am a child. And what a child do? Child know that they don't have enough energy to face the dangers underneath their bed. So they cry out, Father, Father, Daddy, crying out, Romans 8. And Daddy comes running into the room, and what immediately happens when Dad walks into the room? Go to bed. <laughs> Hang on to that, Rusty, because that's exactly what happens second. But the first thing that happens, fear goes out the window. Like that kid's not afraid anymore. Like fear that was controlling them a minute ago, dad walks into the room and what's happened? Fear's gone. And now what's replaced it? Freedom. And what is freedom? Freedom is to be a child with your father. And what does a child do with their father? Daddy, can you get me a glass of water? <laughs> nope, go to bed. Come on, daddy, just a glass of water. 
or maybe some Coke. Can I have some Coke? No, you can't have any Coke. Hey, I know there was some cake on the counter in there. Can we go in there and get some cake? Just the two of us. Let's go get some cake. Like they start hitting with all these. Okay, no, I'm, I'm not going to get anything to drink or eat. Okay, great. Dad, read me a book. Just read me a book. Just one, one book, one book. No, we're going to sleep. Dad, 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 dad. We, 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 we. You know, don't leave the room. <laughs> Tell me a story. Tell me the story of like when you played baseball in high school. You know that story you always brag about? Tell me that story. And the kid's just peppering daddy with all kinds of requests. And finally, what happens? Daddy, would you just lay down with me? And when daddy lays down with a child, like a peace. See, when we, when we can be kids again, and we're with the intimacy of the father that pursued me in the first place, my requests in him are outrageous and continual because I'm coming to my father and I begin to realize it's not really all that stuff I want. I just want you. And if I have you, I have all that other stuff. Now, some of you may say, okay, how do we do that? And let me, let me just kind of make a beeline. You're not going to be satisfied with this, but hang in there, just pursue it. The reason Jesus didn't talk a lot about prayer is because in the Jewish, Jewish tradition, we have a book of prayer in the Bible. We have an entire book of prayer that we can pray, not read, but we pray. It's called the book of Psalms. And here's what's crazy about the book of Psalms. Uh, I've used them for years to, to begin my day. Where am I at? Where's my heart at? Where am I physically? Lord, this is what I need. And I go to the Psalms and the, the Lord just meets me in those Psalms. But let me warn you, if you're willing to do this, they're not tame. They're not tame at all. In fact, I would encourage you to maybe start in Psalm 90. Don't read it. Pray it. Put yourself in that psalm and let the Lord meet you in that place. Read it slow. You may only read one line before you realize, that's all I needed. Lord, okay, meet me there. You may read two lines, but you got to be still. Know that he is God. He is yours. And he is your father. And like a child, you're coming to him now going, Daddy. And when he comes in, he brings himself. But let me read for you. I, I think he says it much better than I do. Rick Stedman, who wrote the book, uh, Praying the Psalms, which I found very helpful. Listen to how he puts it. Praying the Psalms is like a no-hold bar, mixed martial arts, emotional battle with God. Of course, God always wins, but the process changes us for the better. The Psalms are not church lady approved, sanitized prayers. They are real, edgy, authentic, even violent at times. In praying the Psalms, we learn to face our deepest hopes, hurts, and fears and bring them to God in brutal, honest prayers. We learn to identify and express a wide range of emotions, while at the same time keeping those emotions from ruling our lives. We learn how to handle hate and anger, overcome guilt and sorrow, and experience grace and mercy. After all, the only place to learn these skills is within real relationships, which is very clever of God. In the process, we find intimacy with God, deeper community with each other. And what is perhaps the biggest surprise of all, we discover our true selves. So as we begin this series this summer, I hope that when you leave here, you realize you didn't come to church. You are the church. And God didn't meet you here. God has always been with you. And that you will hear the invitation as he knocks on your heart to come and be with him, 
and that you will fellowship with your father and know that he's good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we end this sermon on prayer with prayer. And I just love how Jesus, when your disciples ask you, would you teach us to pray? You just prayed. Um, And so, Lord, we lean into you right now and just ask that you would heal those parts of me and my friends here that we don't believe that we're desirable, that we don't believe that we have caught your gaze, that we don't believe that uh, we are profoundly loved, that we don't believe that we're yours. I pray you'd heal that place so that we can call you ours and we can call you father. And like real sons and daughters, we can cry out for you to come and meet us and how hard this life is, how hard relationships are, how hard just being us is. And that Lord, in that place, you would be with us and give us your peace. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.